This is the Sibling Library Podcast. You will know when to start listening when you hear the chimes ring like this. Let's begin now. Can you all hear me? Yes. yes. Can you all see me? Well, we yeah. can. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another chapter of Sibling Library. My name is Julia. My name is Katie. I'm Megan. Uh, we are going to do a roundup of some library loving. We are going to talk about nonfiction books that we love and why we love nonfiction. Can you see a theme here, you guys? Yes. Books. It's February. <laughs> Valentine's Day. <laughs> Oh, we, the love. love oh, that one went right over. Sorry. Yeah. That's good, Katie. It's, it's all this nonfiction I've been reading. I haven't been dipping into the romance section lately. All right. So did you guys know that this month is a National Library Lovers Month? I did once you told me. Uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> so I it definitely thought... deserves a month. Yeah. I think it has it has a it has a few spots throughout the year that libraries and library workers get some love. But since we are in the month of love, I want us to talk about our love of libraries. So first of all, I'm curious, do you either of you have a favorite library? I mean, yes. Yes. Care to share? <laughs> Well, okay, so the way I was going to answer this, um, like from memories, nostalgia, my favorite earliest library memory, I think, was actually when I was in elementary school. Um, just remembering, I don't know if you guys are, if you, if they had them when you guys were at Glencove, but um, the little caterpillar book things. So when you go to the like bookshelf. Yeah, shelf marker, but they were these I caterpillars. God about those. Yeah, like I love I just loved looking for books so I could shove those on the shelf. They're super cute. And um my something else that I remember about the Glen Cove library is that when I was in like the 4th and 5th grade, I got to be a library helper, so I got to spend like an hour a week manning the front desk at the library checking in and out books for kids. And it was a great idea, but then um, I got too smart for it because kids would say, like, they would come to uh, return a book and I would say, oh, you also have this book checked out. And they'd be like, oh, I already returned that. And I'd be like, oh, okay, I'll just return it for you. And I would find the barcode and manually type the barcode in. And then the librarian was like, no, 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 (laughs) no. If you do that, we will never find that book again. So she was like, if they returned it and it's still on their account, they didn't bring it to the desk to have it checked back in. So you need to go have them look on the shelves to find it so you can scan it from there. So I don't know how many books I lost from the Glen Cove Elementary School Library (laughs) before the librarian told me to stop doing that. But that's my earliest memories of a library and just the feelings of happiness from that library i still remember nice yeah katie 
Good memory. Yeah, I really the the library that I spent the most time in in the course of my life was the Benicia Public Library, and um, I it was my Netflix before I had Netflix. I I started once I realized you could get just about any movie you want. <laughs> That was what I was using it for, obviously books as well, but um, it, it's just a, a lovely area and um, have probably the most fond memories from there. But I also really liked um, the business school library at my college, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, it was a very, I didn't really check out books there, but I m met for a lot of group projects and, and did a lot of homework there. So I spent a lot of time and it was just a really nice space. Um, very organized and it had stained glass windows and I, I really liked that about it. So those would be the two that come to mind for me. I'm going to second you on the Benicia Public Library because that's the one that I remember going to the most. Um, and it's also the one that I went to when I was working on my master's degree. So fond, traumatic memories. <laughs> <laughs> But I will say, I can't wait until we can actually go inside public libraries again. Yeah. I'm lucky enough to work in one and uh, get to browse the shelves there. But I was going to say, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience with, with that and how that's going with COVID-19 and how things are generally handled in public libraries? Well, I think it depends on the library system. Um my library system, a lot of the libraries um, in the Bay Area have actually been allowing limited numbers of patrons in, and we have never let anybody in since the shutdown happened in March. We're still just operating for front door service. Um, so it totally depends on the library system that you use, whether you're allowed inside the building or not. Um, as a children's librarian, it is kind of the worst turn of events because I see no kids anymore. <laughs> and I really like working with kids, so I can't wait until it is safe for people to come into the library again. Here, that's, here. That's going to yes. be a good, a good day. Uh, and how about my second question for this roundup? Do you have any bucket list libraries that you would like to visit? Well, I uh, couldn't think of any real ones. So I went fictional, which is, That's sorry, oh. off off brand for Brilliant. this episode, but <laughs> that's all I could come <laughs> up with. I've been watching a lot of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer lately. And the Sunnydale High School Library seems to be the place to go to solve every single problem demonically related that you might have so um i feel know. like that yeah you never know um there's probably some other good information in there life hacks so i'd <laughs> i'd really like to visit that place steal i want to go into the hogwarts restricted section <laughs> <laughs> all right well i picked a i picked a real library I would like to go to the Trinity College Old Library in Dublin, Ireland and see some rare books. They have some ancient texts there, like the Book of Kells. Have either, do either of you know what the Book of Kells is? No. It is an illuminated manuscript. Do you know what that is? Uh, did the Illuminati write it? No. 
Then no. Is, is it written in <laughs> invisible ink that can only be seen under black lights? No. Then no. An illuminated manuscript, it means that it is a, a book that is decorated with gold or silver. That's a simplified explanation of it. Um, but they're just very ancient, very old books. And the Book of Kells is um, an illuminated manuscript that contains the four Gospels of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And it's just very beautifully decorated. Um, but yeah, I would like to go to Ireland. And I think I think it's kind of a cool thing to add a library to your travel itinerary when you go to a new state or a new country. I think that's kind of a cool thing to do if if you can. So should we move on to the main section? The main event, yes. The main event. We are going to be talking about our what we have been reading in the nonfiction world. Um, we're also going to talk about some of our favorite nonfiction books. Um, who wants to start? Well, do you guys want to talk first about what, how we're defining nonfiction? Like, what is the difference between nonfiction and fiction? Or did you guys want to just dive right in? I think that's a good place to start. Okay. Then let's dive into that. Right. <laughs> You're, you've already dove, Meg. Okay. You already dove. Well, in the classroom, we'll, like, have this conversation with kids to just see if there's a baseline if they can tell when they're reading something if it's fiction or nonfiction. So we'll just make this big list. And it tends to get a little bit deeper level than you'd expect it to because the the very basic is fake versus not fake, right? Mm-hmm. But it's it's kind of it's more than that because it's author's purpose too. Like an author might intend something to be fully true, and it's just plain not fully <laughs> true, right? Um, you have to really think about author's purpose and what it is that they're writing to determine whether it's, I mean, but still, would we consider that to be nonfiction? That was like, going to be my question to you next. Right. So maybe it should be more so like, I don't know, you guys can dive in here too, but maybe it's more something is fiction if it has a plot and characters and a conflict and that type of thing. And it's nonfiction if it's everything else. I don't know. What do you guys think? I feel like it's a kind of a hard question to answer because I also sat here and tried to think about like what what really is the difference between fiction and nonfiction because even a lot of fiction, like you have to do research to make something that is believable. Mm-hmm. Um, like I just read... We were the lucky ones, which was a historical fiction, um, which was based on World War II and what happened in Poland with the Nazis and the the Jewish citizens. And um, the author wrote that based on stories from her own family, uh, but it wasn't obviously she didn't she didn't have like a an account from every family member from that time about what really happened. So she had to, it was based in real events, but like the story wasn't. Which is, 
Yeah, to me that sounds like it falls into the historical fiction yeah. category, mm-hmm. right? Which, yeah, I I feel a little silly because when I saw this question, I was like, oh, this is going to take two seconds. I didn't really know where you were going with it, yeah. Megan. But I'm the example you gave perfectly sets up that discussion though around it's it's really not as black and white as it may seem because mm-hmm. yeah, I had never I had never thought about that in Mm -hmm. terms of like the author's intent. I think that's a really interesting concept. And I mean, you have to, to that point, you have to uh, take that just into anything that's supposed to be completely factual. I mean, we're all humans and Mm -hmm. we all have biases and it totally feeds into whatever we're listening to Mm -hmm. or reading or anything. So you have to you really have to do your own research and mm-hmm. see what is real and yeah and that. and what you just said is usually like the end of the discussion like once a student hits that point it's like okay yes you're getting it it's yeah. you have to understand that every author no matter what the who the author is has their own biases so you have to see are they citing other sources mm-hmm. um are they is it what they're writing, is it peer-reviewed, like those types of things, or is it completely just, you know, out of their own brain? And if it's out of their mm-hmm. own brain, nobody's, you know, I mean, if they're, uh, you also have to look and see what type of expert they are. You know, if they're a, a doctor of neurosurgery, they probably are capable to write a book on the brain, right? But if they're a doctor of the foot, Probably not going to trust their book on the brain unless it is heavily cited by other sources, right? So you have to do your own research to determine what's factual and not factual or what you believe and what you don't. Yeah, that's a good um, that's a good thing, too, to look out for. Like if you're reading a nonfiction book, like look in the back, look at the uh, the sources or the notes or whatever they've got to mm-hmm. like cite their work mm-hmm. um, and then you can go look at those things if you can access them and it's if you're interested <laughs> yeah like if you're doing if you're doing like real research like you have to do in school like you have to do that follow-up right looking into things like you can't just have one source mm-hmm. I know a lot of kids would really just like to use that Wikipedia entry but yeah no but there's Don't so many it. sources that contribute to that one entry. <laughs> I mean, it can the be the voice of the I, people. Yeah. <laughs> I will say like But are you, they all experts? Can, <laughs> no. Yeah, you can't if a if a Wikipedia entry has a good resource list, that that's a great place to like have be your starting off point. Yeah. And use those resources and use rather those than the resources page. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't cite Wikipedia kids. Yeah. So just to just to kind of circle back on what you were saying, Megan, in terms of author's intent, is that is that how in the literary world fiction and nonfiction are defined is is based on the author's intent? Does that is it that simple or is it is it is it as much of a discussion in the literary worlds as we're having right now? Is it not that clear cut? It's not, I don't think it's that clear cut either, because I mean, the the three main purposes an author can have, right, is to 
um, persuade, to entertain, or to explain something, right? So typically we would say, okay, if they're trying to persuade you, probably it's nonfiction. If they're trying to explain something, probably it's nonfiction. If they're trying to entertain you, probably it's fiction. But I mean, then you get into journalistic nonfiction with books like that Richard Preston writes, which I was going to talk about one of them later on, um, where they're, they're telling a story that is true and everything that's happening is true, but it's also the way they frame the, the story is a story. So it's also got that entertaining factor. Um, you know, so no, it's, n- it's not that clear cut, which is kind of why I wanted to talk about it and get your guys's take on it. I love this question. It got my, got my brain juices flowing. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Do you guys want to talk about either some of your favorite nonfiction books or what you specifically read for this episode or whatever you want to talk about? For me, those will be one in the same or three in the same. <laughs> I I don't tend to lean too heavily towards nonfiction. I, I go through phases of, of it. Um, I haven't been in one of those phases for a very long time. Um, so specifically for this episode, I I started to lean into that a little bit and, and found some really great stuff that is kind of pushing me back toward back in that direction because normally when I read, I do it to escape. Um, which I'm not saying you can't do in a nonfiction book. Um, but for me, it's just, I, I tend to, to like things like fantasy and science fiction and, and that type of story. So um, I, I don't know that there is such thing as a, I mean, like maybe you could find a true story that is kind of, it has a science fiction bend to it, but I don't know about fantasy. Um, so I think one of the questions we prepared to answer that I saw, or maybe we talked about leading up to this was why do we read nonfiction books? Um, and I, I have three main reasons that I read them when I do read them, which is infrequent, but I had to kind of think about it. One is because I want to, I want to make something better. I want to get better at something. Um, Another is because I want to fix something. And another is because I'm obsessed with something. (laughs) I need to know everything about it. So um, I'll start with the obsessed with. um, And the the book that I brought as an example for that was one that I mentioned in a prior episode. Um, It's As You Wish by Carrie Ellis, which is his um, telling of his experience in the filming of The Princess Bride. And it, it's really good. Um, well, anyway, I won't, I won't go into too much depth with it because I did discuss it on a prior episode. But part of what I really loved about it uh, was that it talked about something that I, um, I really enjoy. Um, and I got more information about how that story, that movie um, was created and put together and, and how much joy the creative process of that brought to the, all of the people involved. And it, that just brought me even more joy and makes me appreciate the film and the book even more. Um, I loved it. He, he tells so many stories from the making of the movie that will make me watch. And I haven't watched it since reading this book. So I want to watch it again. And it's, it's going to bring me a whole new appreciation for certain things. Like example, 
there's the scene where um, they're, they get caught at the end of the, um, um, the fire swamps and um, the, the six fingered man hits Wesley over the head with the, the hilt of his sword and knocks him unconscious. He truly knocked Carrie Elwes unconscious in that what? scene because they did it a couple times. They practiced it. And this was kind of Carrie Ellis's first foray into stunt work. And he kind of went all in on it. He was like really all about it. And as he was watching the, the film back, um, he thought it didn't look real enough when, when he would hit him. He was like, so he told, he told the actor um, who played the six fingered man, I'm blanking on his name, but um, he told him, go ahead, just, just hit me a little bit on the head. Just, you know, do it soft. And he didn't like pull up hard enough, I guess, or he didn't pull away hard enough. I don't know what the lingo is for it, but he basically hit him too hard. He hit him too hard. He knocked him out. So that one take that you see where he, he gets knocked out, he really got knocked out. He woke up in the hospital. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's not a funny story, but it's an interesting detail about the, I mean, about the movie and the way he tells it is that funny. We know he's okay. True. Yeah. And the way he tells it is funny. Um, and then other details that he adds in about working with some of the other people involved in the movie, there's um, Rob Reiner sounds like the absolute sweetest director, non-Hollywood type person to work for. Like he genuinely cares for all of his actors and everyone involved in the movie set. There's a story about one of the little people that was inside one of the ROUS costumes which is hilarious. <laughs> I, I don't want to give that away because it's one of my favorite parts of the book. But um, and then just him talking about his um, his dealings with Andre the Giant um, and how how interesting he was as a person um, and what he brought to the to the cast. So that's that's the first example I'll bring. But I don't want to keep talking. I'll let maybe we can do kind of a round robin sort of deal like we normally use or normally do. So if, if I can come back to my other two. I'll go next because I kind of took the same route Katie did and it's kind of funny like pretty much everything Katie said is uh, very similar to what I was thinking so I was going to start off with um, saying very similarly I typically read fiction to escape daily life right you read fiction to have that time where you can stop thinking about what's going on in your life um and enjoy someone else's story. But for me, nonfiction is kind of like, so I read fiction to escape life, and then I read nonfiction to try to make life better. Um, for like, if I want to learn something, if I want to understand something better or learn a new skill. So um, I'm going to start with what I've been reading most recently um, to, lear to learn to improve a new skill. Um, for me, I've my fiance and I just bought a house uh, towards the end of last year, and we have these beautiful garden beds in our backyard that I very much want to have a nice flourishing vegetable garden this year. So I've gotten many books um, on gardening. Uh, my favorite two um, are Raised Bed Gardening for Beginners by Tammy Wiley. So if you're someone who's interested in learning how to do raised bed gardening, definitely start there. Um, she um, makes everything really understandable in bite-sized amounts. So it's a short book. I read it in about an hour, um, which is untypical 
not typical for me when it comes to nonfiction. Usually it takes me a little longer to get through nonfiction books. Um, but that one is a great place to start. And then my favorite, favorite one is called Veg in One Bed by Hugh Richards. And this book essentially gives you the blueprints for how to um, grow and harvest about 20 different vegetables in one 10 foot by four foot raised garden bed over the course of one growing season. So um, it's pretty cool. That's my, those are my favorite ones. Good recommendations. Thanks. Um, we must be related or something. Cause both of what <laughs> you said for the reasons why you read nonfiction are resonating with me as well. And um, that kind of, drew me to the books that I have either read or started for this episode. Um, the first one I can talk about is Outer Order, Inner Calm, Declutter and Organize to Make Room for Happiness by Gretchen Rubin. Um, and it's just about, I was drawn to this book because I have a lot of clutter around at the moment and it raises my anxiety and I really want to do something about it. So she kind of just offered some tips and advice on how to declutter and find your inner calm. Um, and I liked, especially one of the things she talked about was she gave um, Christmas shopping advice, which I thought was very very cool and maybe something that we can kind of try and follow this year. Um, get something you want, something you need, something to wear, and something to read. That's the format. Instead of just buying a whole bunch of stuff that I still have sitting out in the hall because I don't know where to put it all. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Just the essentials. Before we do another round, were you, sorry, were you done, Joel? Yeah. Okay, before we do another round, I was going to think if we're all having the same thought in regards to why we read nonfiction and that it's to learn something new or to understand something better, do you think maybe that should be part of the definition of nonfiction? Like, is that part of the purpose of nonfiction is to help us understand or learn something as opposed to just simply entertain? Yeah, I'm sure it know. is because... This is why books are organized by topic in the library so that you can find those different, not genres, but different topics for, like, if you want to declutter, there's a section for that. If you want to uh, garden, there's a gardening section. Katie, what was your book? Oh, it was biographies. As you wish. Yeah. Biographies. Katie, what's your second round? Uh, the second one that I wanted to talk about was um, fulfills that desire to want to improve at something. It's called Dare to Lead. Sorry, I turned my head. I don't know if you guys could hear that. It's called Dare to Lead uh, by Brene Brown, and it's a leadership book. Um, I am a operations manager and learning how to be an effective leader is a lot more complicated than I ever would have thought before I came into this position. I've been leading this team for uh, three years now, I think. 
have had some experience with, with leadership prior to this, but the more you know and understand about how to be an effective leader, the the happier your workplace is going to be and the more your, your team is going to appreciate you and the more you're going to appreciate them because it's, it's just a better experience for everyone. And it's a really interesting book. I actually haven't gotten all the way through it yet, but I really like the way that it's framed. Um, Brene Brown is a, a pretty well-known um, speaker and writer about uh, about leadership and business. Um, she's got a podcast called, I forget what it's called. She's got a podcast. She's got a couple podcasts. I think she does have one uh, that's the same title as the, as the book dare to lead, but she has another one as well. I think it's understanding ourselves or something like that. Um, and I just started listening to it. So that's, that's why I'm not remembering it. Did the you find unlocking it? us. The un- yes, that's it. Unlocking us. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a new one to me, but I found out as I was reading this book that she has some podcasts and she's she's a pretty compelling um, speaker and she's got a, a pretty well-known TED talk out there. Um, so I'm learning a lot. I'm taking a lot from this book and I'm taking some things from it that you would not expect uh, to be important when it comes to leadership, um, at least from the outside or if, if you're um, you know, someone that doesn't view leadership in this way. Uh, the kind of the main crux of the book is learning about how being vulnerable and willing to be vulnerable with your team and with the people that you work with is completely imperative to to being a good leader because it allows you to have more genuine and authentic conversations with people um, and and it allows you to, it, 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 it fosters empathy, um, basically in the workplace, which is something I think everyone needs everywhere, but especially in the workplace, because I think we, we tend to feel like in the workplace, we have to be very stoic, perfect. Yes. Perfectionism is, is a huge Um, pitfall in the workplace. And this book talks a lot about how that is actually anti-productive to a lot of what, what you're trying to do in fostering creativity and teamwork and, you know, coming up with innovative solutions to problems and and moving forward rather than standing in place. So um, I'm really enjoying it. I haven't finished it yet, but I can already say that I recommend it. Um, And it's probably one that I'll read multiple times. So that's, that's that one for, um, again, getting, trying to get better at something is, the purpose for reading that one. That makes me think a little bit of teaching because we're often told as teachers, our students will love us even more if they see that we realize we're not the best at everything. And we show them that we don't actually know everything. So whenever I'm teaching something and somebody asks a question that I don't know the answer to, I'll be like, you know, let's Google it right now. (laughs) <laughs> Let me fire up the Google machine and let's find the answer to that. And they, you know, they, it's just nice to show them that even their teachers are learning. So I'm sure it's nice for the people who work for you to show that you're, you're learning still too. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So my turn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was also going to go down the realm of, well, I don't know if this is exactly the same realm as yours, but um, ways to improve my life. Um, I've got two books here 
that I want to talk about. One I just read and one I read several years ago, but the one that I just read is called Making Disease Disappear. Um, That's the American title of it. He's actually a British doctor named Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Um, And the the British title of his book is The Four Pillar Plan. Why all these books have to have different titles in different countries, I I don't know. But um, that's that one. So this book is about taking a more balanced approach to health and um, living well, essentially. And the four pillars that he talks about are um, chain like relaxing the right way, eating the right way, um, sleeping the right way and moving the right way. So these four pillars essentially of your health, that if you're out of balance with any one of them, you're going to be out of balance with all of them. Um, so trying to find ways to be balanced among those four. And what I really like about it is he gives you for each of those four pillars, he gives you five really simple things that you can do every single day. So, for example, for relaxing better, he recommends that you spend at least 10 minutes a day in stillness or take 15 minutes of me time each day and you're not allowed to feel guilty about it. Um, For eating, the one I remember, because it's the one I'm working on right now, is getting five, at least five servings of fresh vegetables every day and preferably five vegetables of different colors if possible. Um, sleeping, he recommends, I mean, this is one that everybody knows now, right? Try to turn off your screens 30 to 90 minutes before, uh, before you go to, to sleep so that your mind can shut off and you're not getting that blue light anymore. And then for, uh, what was the last one for moving, for exercising, he recommends getting 10,000 steps a day. Um, so these are, it's like the best nonfiction books I feel like are the ones that take something really, really big and scary and breaking it down into bite-sized pieces that makes it feel like you can actually attain that goal or make that change. You know, like he's taking this idea of being a healthy person, which is broad and scary and breaking it down into action steps that you can take and maintain each day. Um, so that I highly recommend it um, if anybody's interested in that. And then the other one that I'll just talk about briefly because it's been a while since I read it um, is also a Gretchen Rubin book. Um, it's called The Four Tendencies, and the subtitle is The Indispensable Personality Profiles That Reveal How to Make Your Life Better and Other People's Lives Better Too. I think that's another prerequisite for nonfiction books. If it has a really long subtitle, it's probably nonfiction. Um <laughs> Add it to the definition. Yeah. So we should have an anchor chart going on the wall somewhere. (laughs) Um, So this one is, and again, it's been a while since I've read it, but it tells you it's people aren't typically, typically in four different categories of what it is that um, tends to motivate them to accomplish things, whether they're motivated because somebody else is holding their account, holding them accountable, whether they're motivated on their own, like just by holding themselves accountable, whether they are motivated if they see purpose behind it or whether they are only motivated if no one tells them to do it, including themselves. I believe those are the four tendencies and they have, they all have names, but I don't remember what the names are, but it's a good one. I would recommend that one too. That one helped me understand some of my more difficult students 
um, how I could help motivate them to want to accomplish the things I wanted them to accomplish. So that's a good one too. That's interesting. Lovely. Yeah. Like you used it not just as a, a self-help book, but you were able to kind of apply it to how you approached and, um, you know, taught some of your students. I think that's, mm-hmm. was that, what did you go into the book with that intention or was it more for your, for like self-help? I no, I, th- well, I think both. Um, I think the reason I came across that when I heard about it on a podcast, um, Angela Watson's Truth for Teachers podcast, she had Gretchen Rubin on because she thought the book would be great for teachers to read. So I read it with the intent of, I think I had an especially challenging student that year. And I was hoping that um, figuring out which of the four tendencies that student leaned towards might help me have a couple extra tools up my sleeve. And I think it might, I, th- I, I think it helped. I don't know. I don't remember now. I feel, I can't even remember what it was like to be in a classroom because it's been <laughs> almost a year since I've been in a classroom. So I don't really remember if it helped or not. I'm sure it did. We'll go with that. <laughs> Julia. Me. Uh, so the next book I'll talk about is also in the realm of me wanting to get better at something. And it is called Dave Ramsey's Complete Guide to Money. Because I just bought my first car on my own and I want to make sure that, um, I don't go broke in the process of trying to pay off my loan. Um, so... The, the bummer is that um, I've already learned that I made the mistake by buying the car before I read this book. Because <laughs> his whole thing is to uh, live debt-free and not take the loan. But already past that point, so I'm going to work on his baby steps for saving and uh, budgeting and all that kind of fun, horrible adult stuff that I should already know how to do, but don't. Teaching financial freedom. I haven't learned it yet, but I will keep you updated if I ever do. (laughs) It's Um, a good skill to have. mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Katie? Okay, so the last one that I was going to talk about is falls into the realm for me of something that I want to fix. We've talked a few different on a few different episodes about um, a lot of the social anxiety and ongoing ongoing conflict um, when it comes to racial bias and um, mistreatment of African Americans and any insert whatever minority you want to put here because that happens in this country. Um, the book that I had the pleasure of listening to, and I've actually listened to twice now, and that's the the first time I can ever say that I've listened to a nonfiction book twice because I, and I know that I'll listen to it multiple times again. It's called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And it's so well-written, so well-framed, so thought-provoking And although it talks about every racial atrocity that you can think of in the history of our country, down to talking about the fact that Nazis looked at 
the American model for um, for segregation and the way that that they they set up our kind of invisible caste system when they started figuring out what they were going to be doing with the Holocaust. Like they looked at America and and started from there because of what I don't think I knew that. I didn't either before reading this, before listening to this book. That um, makes a lot of sense, though. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I like the most about the way this book is written, because I, I think coming from, you know, the way that she she discusses throughout the book, um, she kind of reframes it to, to, rather than talk about race, she refers to people in the stories that she's talking about, whether it be, you know, from her research of, of history or from her own life. Um, she is African-American. She doesn't talk about it being, you know, as, as she's making reference to the people in the stories, she, she refers to them as upper caste or, or dominant caste and, and lowest caste as opposed to white versus black um, or African-American or Caucasian, um, which completely just reframes the way that it's looked at. Um, we've, we've, used skin color as a way to stratify our our caste system um you think about you, you hear the word caste and you think of a place like india um and you, you don't liken that to our country but the more that she explained it and the more that she she kind of broke down the the similarities is it's absolutely a caste system here um and I, I think I, I really am drawn to, Megan, like you said, uh, when a writer is able to take a really big, complex, scary concept and break it down into digestible bits, I'm always very impressed by a writer that's able to do that. Um, because for me, you know, kind of trying to navigate this year and, you know, obviously it didn't just start this year. <laughs> it's been going on for a really long time. Um, but it's something that I, in my privileged life, have not had to deal with in the same way that um, my fellow human beings that are of a different skin color than me have. Um, and the the way that she she framed it at the very beginning made a, made a lot of sense because she she addressed this to to those who would say, you know, I've I don't need to worry about this. I've I've never I'm not a racist. My family's not a racist. I, my descendants did not own slaves. I had nothing to do with anything that's going on. I do not need to feel, there's nothing I need to do in this situation because I am blameless. Um, she compared that to buying an old house. And just because you did not contribute to whatever's wrong with that house, you know, anything that's been neglected or um, run down and not addressed over the years, you own that now. You are responsible for for improving it, maintaining it, regardless of whether you have blame. Um, and then she kind of opened the book up that way and then brought it brought it full circle at the end because I think, you know, as I, as I said, I, I, I went into this wanting answers about what I can do. Um, and I, I think that a lot of us are searching for those answers. And she she stated it really well because she at the at the very end she kind of wrapped it up saying that she did not write this book with the intention of fixing all of the problems that we have. 
she wrote the book to bring to light what they are, to bring awareness. And she said, just like an inspector who comes to look at a house um, that needs fixing, it's not their responsibility to fix it. It's the homeowner's responsibility once they know what the problems are to go and fix it. And she said the least that um, people in the dominant caste can do, the very least is when they see mistreatment or something that's unfair, um, is to not make the situation worse. Um, she And she talks about a lot of stories within that. It makes sense in the context of some of the things that she shares. But, um, you know, if you see something that's wrong, feel empowered to say something. Um, I mean, obviously, within your comfort level, if you feel like you're in an unsafe situation, that's that's one thing. But, you know, if, if you see someone being mistreated, give yourself permission to say something. Um, and I think that that's something that I've always been afraid to do, you know, kind of getting involved with other people's lives. But reading or reading and listening to to this book has has kind of primed me for, you know, being more aware of and kind of being ready to address situations like that if I do observe them or if I'm around them. If I have any if I, if I have any way that I can help, I will try. Um, that's kind of what I walked away from it with. Um, but it's I, I it's a beautiful book. Um, it's hard. A lot of it is hard to listen to, um, but it's it's necessary, I think, for everyone to understand and and have a lot of the knowledge that's in there. So I really recommend it to everyone. Sorry, that got heavy. No, that's <laughs> that really heavy. You did a really good job of explaining the big points of it. So thanks. good job. Yeah, thanks. My turn? Yes. Okay. Um, so I think maybe my favorite, well, I don't know about my favorite, but a segment of nonfiction that I really enjoy reading, and I don't know if this is the actual term for it, um, is journalistic nonfiction. So it's kind of like investigative storytelling um but it's all supposed to be true right again whether it is who really knows except for the author but um in this realm my favorite book ever is called the wild trees um it's by richard preston he's also the author of the hot zone and the demon in the freezer which are also kind of books in the same realm where they're He's investigating the same topic, long story that it is something that could be an article in a newspaper, but it's long enough to be a novel or like a book. So it's not in a newspaper, right? That's kind of how I would explain journalistic nonfiction. But The Wild Trees, if you didn't know that there is a whole ecosystem within one redwood tree, like complex almost a whole entire other world. Like if you never wanted to climb a redwood tree, which can get to be up to like several hundred feet tall, read this book and you will all of a sudden want to find a way to go climb a redwood tree because it's, it's really fascinating. Um, and then my other favorite one that I've read recent, fairly recently is called Inheritance, a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love by Danny Shapiro. And it's, <clears throat> it is a memoir, but it's also investigative journalism because she's, um, she found out when she was like in her 40s or 50s, I'm not sure, but she took a, a DNA test, one of the just, you know, the, the spit DNA tests like 23andMe or 
ancestry um, and found out through that that her father who raised her was not her father, not her biological father anyway. And so the whole book is her trying to find out, like, what really happened. Um, and so she does dives very far into figuring out the investigation she does is she finds out what the the practices were in the medical field for couples that were having a hard time conceiving um, back when they were starting in vitro practices. Um, and I guess what she found out is it was common practice that if they weren't sure if the man's sperm was viable, what they would do is just mix in some random person's sperm along with the father, the original guy's sperm, and no one would ever know whose sperm actually inoculated the egg. Well, now, <laughs> yeah, now with 23andMe and Ancestry, all these people are suddenly finding out without ever having known my dad's not my biological dad. And it's um, it's really fascinating. Like, she also has a podcast called Family Secrets, and she has on a lot of people that have had either something similar happen to them or just some other major secret in their life come out. And there's all these similar patterns. Like, there's always this idea of the unthought known is her big thing, which is something you've always known but never allowed yourself to really think about. And there's also a pattern of once these secrets come out, the person who wasn't like didn't make those secrets happen, but once they find out, just feel this overwhelming sense of shame um, for no reason of their own, right? It's not it's not their fault that these things happen. But um, really fascinating book and also a really good podcast if you're interested. Family Secrets by Danny Shapiro is the podcast and Inheritance by Danny Shapiro is the book. Nice. Uh, so for the last section that I want to talk about, um, this is just something that I like reading about and I really like reading biographies and I have two favorites that I would like to mention. Um, the first one is called The Million Dollar Mermaid by Esther Williams and Digby Deal. Um, and it's about the life of Esther Williams, who was a very famous swimmer actress uh, for MGM Studios back in like the heyday of the studio system, uh, studio era movies. Um, and what I liked about this book is that it was so gossipy and, and gossipy and entertaining that I literally stayed up all night to watch it, um, to read it. <laughs> I literally stayed up all night to read it. And um, I highly recommend this book if you're at all interested in like the uh, old time Hollywood um, era of movie history and then the second biography that I'd like to mention is Walt Disney an American original by Bob Thomas and this is uh, considered the definitive biography of Walt Disney he had like the author had full access to private letters and papers of um, Walt Disney and he just had the full support of the Disney family as he was writing this book so if you're at all di interested in Walt Disney um the man, how he created his the studio and the parks and all that. Um, 
go out and read it. Short and sweet. Nothing deep for, for me over here. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the what the two points you made about the Walt Disney biography about how it's the definitive one because he had access to all those resources, mm-hmm. but also su- the support of the family does make it a little bit so the all the resources makes it reputable, right? Because he's got sources to cite. Um, yeah. But then having the support of the family makes it a little bit like, eh, were they able to veto anything that should have gone in the book? You know what I mean? Yeah, but there have been other, um, obviously there's been other biographies written about him. And there's one by Neil Gabler that is n- not supported by the Disney company and everything. And like even in the beginning, he kind of perpetuates the myth that Walt Disney's head is frozen somewhere. <laughs> which is just I don't know why I'm laughing at that That's I know it's, funny. it's just kind of disrespectful to the family and it's just a ridiculous thought yeah just, yeah that's why I'm not laughing at it being funny it's just ridiculous yeah. yeah um so it's just kind of like yeah I get what you're saying but I liked it <laughs> I'm not saying that you that anybody should go read it and question whether it everything in there is fact. I'm just saying there could very well be more to his story that just hasn't ever been told to the general public. Right. That's all. Right. Well, I'm still the host. Um, <laughs> so did either uh did do either of you have any other nonfiction books that you'd like to call out? Um, honorable mention for Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. And that one falls in the getting better at things camp. And it's really, um, it's, it's really, it's very voluminous. It's very, it's a very thick book, but it's nice in the sense that you can pick and choose what you want to read. It's tips and tricks and life hacks from people who are really successful in whatever field that they're in and kind of looking into what are some of the things that help them perform at such a high level. So you can kind of choose from there what you're interested in and read bits and pieces of the book without having to read it in a linear format. So um, I I really like that one. I haven't read all of it, but I've read bits of it. So I I think that one's an interesting one. Nice. I have one that I want to mention that I read several years ago, and this falls under the camp of Katie said at the very beginning, she likes to read some nonfiction if she's obsessed with whatever the topic is. So this one, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm obsessed with scary stuff, which we've, I I think we've mentioned on previous podcasts that I'm a major scaredy cat. Um, Like when I watch something scary or hear something scary or read something scary, it tends to stick with me for a long time. Um, But at the same time, it's like a train wreck. I can't look away. Like once I start watching it or reading it, I have to, I have, I have to keep reading it. I can't put it down. Um, And something that I thought there was just one summer where I was like, I want to read something kind of scary, but if I get it from the kids section of the library, it can't be that scary, right? So I got the book, uh, The Borden Murders, Lizzie Borden and the Trial of the Century by Sarah Miller. And I have to be honest, 
I can't believe this was in the children's section. There were pictures in the middle of the actual dead bodies still lying on the floor of the bedrooms. Oh. Yeah. Like. No thanks. And I can still see the picture in my head because, like I said, these things stick with me for a long time. I will probably have a hard time sleeping now. But if you're into that type of thing, the book was really well done. All all. kinds of recommendations. Yep. Good good luck sleeping, Megan. Thanks. I'll just have to have Chris not play video games and come to sleep at at my bedtime tonight. That'll happen. (laughs) Well, we're already six minutes past that, so. We are. Okay, ladies, why don't we start wrapping things up? Um, Before we get into our bookends, I do want to mention um, that for our episode in March, we are planning on all reading the novel, the graphic novel, and watching the movie of Slaughterhouse-Five. That is written by Kurt Vonnegut. So if you're interested in maybe... Being more informed of our uh, conversation or even wanting to join us on our Instagram page or anything. Um, well, part of part of why we are we decided to do this is none of us have experienced that story in any format. And we thought it would be an interesting experiment for the three of us to consume that content in different orders and find out whether that impacted our opinions at all about um, about any any version of it or the story itself. Obviously, this isn't going to be a scientific study. There's only three of us um, mm-hmm. and we're all very similar to each other, but we're, we're all doing it in a different order. So we just we thought it would be a fun exercise to to see what kind of discussion we could have after going through that. Mm-hmm. So join yeah, us. And we, yeah, we wanted to give you all a heads up in case you wanted to also try our experiment. Okay, so why don't we finish up with bookends? Uh, let's go around the table and talk about uh, quickly what we have been reading lately. Katie? All right, I am still making my way through Dare to Lead, which is what I'm currently reading. Um, prior to that, I finished up um, Hellblazer, John Constantine, which was a, a Christmas gift from Julia's Adam, and I really enjoyed that. Um, and then once I get through Dare to Lead, I'll be finishing up a reread of a couple of volumes of the graphic or the comic book series Saga to prepare for our comic book club this upcoming week. Um, it'll it'll have happened already by the time the show airs, but <laughs> um, based on when we're recording, so um, that's that's on my plate. Megan. Um, so I last time we talked, I was in the middle or starting the second Land of Stories book, and I am still in that one. I just had to put it down because all of a sudden I got all this assigned reading, uh, you know, Slaughterhouse-Five. And I actually also, one of my friends, um, Sarah, asked me to join a book club with her and her friends, and they we are reading American Dirt by Janine Cummins. Um, so I've been working on that one and it, it's really good so far. Um, it's essentially about, uh, this woman and her son trying to escape the cartel in Mexico. So they're trying to find their way, um, to the North, to the United States. 
Um, so that's what I'm working on now. I also have read many gardening books because there's a little bit of a time crunch because our frost ends or our frost our last frost date in our hardiness zone of 9b which is where we are in the bay area Who even are you i learned <laughs> from nonfiction books so i read a bunch of gardening are you books sure and got... Who, who's the author what's the uh, author's intention okay well so this one and <laughs> this one i know is true because it's been the same fact from many books and many websites so awesome. where we are in Solano County, we are in hardiness zone 9B, which means that our last frost date is February 24th, which means that's kind of when you can start planting stuff and not have to be afraid of things to freeze. So that's why I've been trying to read as many gardening books as I can so that I'm very prepared for this date. Um, so I have one more that I want to read. It's Square Foot Gardening, and I can't remember the author, but um, yeah. Julia? Awesome. Uh, so I've got a few that I'll talk about. Um, I am currently reading The Night Swim by Megan Golden. Um, and this is a fiction book about a true crime podcaster uh, who is going traveling to a little small town to cover a current trial. Um, but she, then she's ending up getting sucked into a different uh case from the same small town um and i recently finished poet x by elizabeth acevedo which was a fantastic book um it's a young adult fiction uh it's written in verse and it's about a teenage girl who lives in harlem in new york city and she's just trying to understand her place in the world and in her family and just in her friend group and just all of that so it very, very good. Um, and then I just finished a book called Influence by Sarah Shepard. Uh, and she's the same author of the Pretty Little Liars series. Um, and this one is a thriller YA novel. Um, and it just kind of takes a look at the world of social media influencing and influencers and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. You're the so. first one that you mentioned sounds like the um Alice and Sweeney Hallmark movies and mysteries uh series. Chronicle oh. Mysteries, I think it's called. She has a true crime podcast and she goes to various places and solves mysteries. At least that's what I can gather from the commercials. I haven't actually watched any of them. I have to check that out. All right. Well, I think that is going to bring us to a close. Does anybody else have anything else they want to share? Nope. I'm all shared out too. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I think we've, we've said enough. Um, so until next month, let's continue to read, share, and repeat. Bye. Bye. That brings us to a close on this chapter of Sibling Library. Thank you for listening. Until next time, let's read, share, and repeat.